0: Began last week, our verse-by-verse teaching through the Book of Ephesians. As a church, we have a conviction about doing that very thing—about preaching verse-by-verse through books. We sometimes take breaks and do other things. We just did a series in the family um, and other kinds of things. We'll do a, a short series at Christmas time, at Advent. But basically, most of the time, we are working our way through books of the Bible. We have a conviction about that because we believe that the scriptures are god's authority and they are the message of his grace to his people you may or may not know this but this is the 499th anniversary of the protestant reformation next year next october um, we will celebrate Somehow, I don't know how we'll do it, we'll celebrate somehow the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, at its core, was a return to the authority and the sufficiency of Scriptures for salvation and for worship. And so that helps us understand, as a church and that stream, as an assembly of believers with those same convictions, that we come to the Word of God to hear His voice. This means that we are to bow to his authority, but we also come to hear his voice because we need to be affirmed in his promises. And so we go verse by verse through the scriptures so that we can understand as much as we can, to understand it in detail. It is easy to gloss over passages of the Bible, especially ones that are pretty familiar. And if you've grown up in church to any degree, you've probably read the book of Ephesians, you've perhaps heard it taught. But we want to make sure that as we go through, we get every bit that we can. Now, we won't focus on every single word or we would be in this book for more than a decade, but we will hit the highlights and hit some of the details along the way so that we can glean from it as much as we can. And so I ask you now in a posture of prayer, even if we don't necessarily pray, to believe that God has a word for you. And out of conviction, as one of his followers or Perhaps not to listen, to listen humbly in submission, because he is the one who made you, but also to listen with expectation, because he is the one who rescues you through his Son. And so these first two verses, which we briefly touched on last week in our introduction to the book, I want to come back to now to look at, to understand what the Spirit of God has for us in these verses, and so we will cover verses 1 through 2 the introduction to the letter. And I believe that the central idea of these first couple of verses is that God makes promises to us, and as a result of that, we might live in peace. And so, as we study these couple of verses today, may God's Spirit confirm to us the promises of God, and thereby grant us peace. My oldest son recently went to our county fair. He's old enough now that he can hang out with his friends and do older kids stuff with some measure of supervision. And so we gave him some money when he left so that he could have an entrance fee and he could buy like deep fried Twinkies and chocolate wrap bacon and whatever they sell at the fair. And so we didn't have any expectations that he would bring any of that money back. This is especially true when you start handing your children money early on. So a couple days later we were doing something going to a Sports practice or something and he started confessing something to me and he said dad I didn't bring all the money back and I wasn't expecting it so I was fine with that but I knew this was going somewhere so you know what you do whenever your children start confessing things you start probing a little bit something like this like oh really buddy Well, what do you mean by that because questions expose and he said well there was a climbing wall and they had a hundred dollar prize that if you could make it all the way to the top they would give you not only your entrance fee back, but they would give you like $100. Well, my son's 11. $100 to an 11-year-old is like $10,000 to the rest of us. It's a fortune. So he thought that this would be a really good deal. But of course, he didn't make it. And so I said, another probing question, I said, buddy, did you think you could make it? And he said, yes, because I'm a good climber. Well, we go to Colorado and things like that. He's climbed rocks before, so now he deems himself to be a great outdoor adventurer. And I said, well, did anybody tell you not to do this? And he said, yes. And I said, who? And he said, the guy who was in charge. And so I said to him, do you mean that the man who operates this particular feature of the fair told you not to do it and you still did it? And he said, yes so I said, buddy, you have learned an important lesson in life. If it sounds too good to be true, it is every single time. And he said, well, not all the time, right? And I said, no, no, no. Every single time. If it seems too good to be true, it always is. Except not. The book of Ephesians takes three in-depth, densely packed chapters to affirm to us that the one who made all things, hundreds of billions of stars, the one who keeps it all in motion, the one who gave laws to his people that they might understand him and relate to him, And yet they turned against him. That he loves his people. And he has done everything necessary. To bring them back to himself. And he does it out of sheer sovereign love. If we understand human sinfulness... Whatever label you choose to put on sin, at its core, it is rebellion against God. It is a prideful belief that you can make life work on your own and an arrogant lack of belief that He alone can satisfy your soul. It has been that way from the beginning. And whether you use the word sin to label it, or not, it is rebellion against the Almighty, against the Creator, against our King. And because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. That is not a popular notion, it is not a, a happy notion, it is a tragic reality. But to think that such a God would not only choose not to destroy us, but instead... Would send his son to the planet to take on human flesh. To keep all the laws that we could not keep and to die the death that we deserve. And then offer himself and his abundant, eternal, unstoppable righteousness to all who would receive. So that we might not only pass from being enemies of God but instead to being sons and daughters. That seems too good to be true, but in this case, it's not. And the promises of this book, and in fact, the first two verses of the book, are promises that are true, and because they are confounding and because they are astounding, and because they are true for all who will receive this by faith, we can have peace, not only in the hereafter, but in the here and now. We explored last week two major divisions of the book of Ephesians. First of all, the first three chapters, we learned that we have been reconciled to God by Christ and have been granted unfathomable privileges as his ransom people. So again, we who deserve punishment get sonship instead. As we move through the book into chapters 4 and 6, we will learn that in light of all of this, because we have these amazing, astounding promises, we have the privilege and responsibility to live for His glory. So as we kick off today, we will be in this first section. and For the next several months, we will be learning again and again and again that God is for His people. In some senses, I want you to sit back and rest and such astounding love, but we will tease out implications for the way that you respond to Him and to each other. We said last week that there's lots of things we will learn along the way. Well, in this coming section, we will learn the answer to this question. What did God, Father, Son, and Spirit do to ensure our salvation, and what bearing does this have on our assurance as His people? We will begin to explore the answer to that question today. The foundational first thought of these first two verses is this. God has proven his gracious love for his people. Paul, in subtle terms, wants us to know that God has proven his gracious love for his people. He teaches us the truth of this in three different ways. How has he done this? How has God done this? First of all, God has ensured the spread of his gospel. The gospel is the good news. What is the good news? The good news is that those of us who deserve the wrath of God can be forgiven. And not only this, we can have the promise of the fatherhood of God. We can be reconciled to God. The good news is that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. If we receive this good news by faith, not just believing certain facts about an historical figure named Jesus, but staking our claim on his promises, trusting, resting in his promises. If we will rest in the gospel, then good news flows to us and we can have life forevermore. But God is the one who wanted this shared. God is the one who wanted this to be known among all peoples everywhere. And Paul and others like him were chosen by God to make sure that this was shared. Paul says in verse 1 that he, Paul, is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This means that he was set apart by God's providence under the plan of God to have a certain job, to fulfill a certain role. An apostle was one sent out to proclaim, to preach, to share, to make the good news known. Paul was one of these ones sent out by God to make this known. Jesus chose disciples for himself. You know this if you know anything about the story of Jesus' life. Most of those disciples went on to become what we call apostles, ones that Jesus sent to preach and teach. Jesus, in John fifteen sixteen says to his disciples, right before he's about to be arrested and crucified, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This does not mean that in some sense the disciples did not freely choose Christ by faith. Jesus is not negating that people must receive him by faith. What he's saying here is that he took the sovereign initiative to bring these people to himself. Not only for salvation, but to be apostles. To be ones sent out by him to make his good news known. If you study deities, gods of other religions, you tend to find lots of common features, perhaps the chief of which is that most of those deities are selfish, most of those deities do not share, and most of those deities ask a high price from the followers of said deity, so that said deity will be pleased with worshipers and will not destroy said worshipers. Jesus is the diametrically opposed opposite of all of that. Jesus deserves worship. Jesus, as God, had the right to vaporize all of the rebels that came from Adam's race. But he did exactly the opposite when he came to the earth and took on flesh, and kept all of God's laws, and died in our place. And then, he chose men to go out and make this astoundingly good news known. It seems too good to be true that the God who made all things, to whom all worship is due, would come into our human existence and set things right. But my friends, it is not too good to be true in this case. And Jesus wants his good news shared. He wants thousands, millions of worshipers restored by his sacrifice to come and worship him and enjoy him for forever. Jesus is not a selfish God. Jesus is a God who shares and loves And sacrifices on behalf of his people. Now the truth remains that this good news must be received. Because there is coming a day when judgment will come. But it has been abated. It has been paused. The wrath of God has been delayed for those who have time still. If you are here today and you have not yet moved from simple understanding of the facts of Jesus, if you've not moved from belief in certain central facts about Jesus to what we call resting, saving faith, as we've already said, staking your claim that, that Jesus is the only one who can deliver you from the wrath of God and give you righteousness, today may well be the day, and I call on you to receive the one who offers himself freely and shares himself freely. All the disciples were sinners. They weren't chosen because they were rich. They weren't chosen because they were eloquent. They weren't chosen because they were righteous. Much the opposite. And though Paul was not one of the original disciples, he was chosen by God as well to go make this good news known. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 7. As we've already seen in the opening words of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Some of you are familiar with the story of Paul, but if not, let's go back and look a bit in the history of the early church and we will learn who Paul was, where he came from. There was an early leader in the church named Stephen. Stephen was one who made sure that the church had all that it needed, especially the poor people in the church. But Stephen was also a preacher of the good news. In Acts chapter 7, Luke has an extended sermon from Stephen about how the fact that Jesus came to the earth and offered himself to those who would trust him. This was offensive to the Jews, and they stoned him. In verse 58, we find they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is his execution. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you don't mind, let's now look in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Then a persecution arose as you go down through the early portions of chapter 8. Later on in chapter 9. Verse 1, we find this man named Saul. It's one who was charged by the Jewish officials to stamp out the early stages of Christianity. We find him in verse 1 of chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was kind of like the Jewish officials hit man and he liked it he was good at it in verse 3 of chapter 9 Luke records as he went on his way he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me?" And he said who are you Lord he said I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do Later on, in verse 15, a man named Ananias is charged by Jesus to take Paul under his wing and to teach him for this purpose. Go, verse 15, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This man named Saul, his Hebrew name was Saul, had a Greek name. Paul. He would mostly be known by that Greek name later, perhaps primarily because he would go to the Gentiles, a Greek and cultured place, to tell them about the good news of Jesus. This man named Saul, or Paul, was not seeking for God, much the opposite. He was seeking to stamp out those who claimed that Jesus was the Messiah and was the only way to life. So Jesus overcame his rebellion by sovereign grace and brought him to himself and then charged him that he would go out and do the opposite of what he'd been doing. Rather than stamping out Christianity, he was to see its seeds sown, to nurture it, to tend it, and to see it explode. If you look with me, please, in Galatians chapter 1, we gain perspective on how Paul understood his conversion and his mission. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, we find that Paul says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If anybody understood that his calling was from God, it was Paul. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and we will stop reading there. Paul understood that despite the fact he was a rebellious sinner, in fact, maybe the worst of them, he calls himself that later, that he'd been set apart by God to make this good news known. This good news rescued Saul, Paul, from rebellion and turned him into a worshipper and a preacher. And so, as Paul opens up the letter to the Ephesian church, he calls us to understand that he was not special; he himself was a sinner, being set been set apart by God to make the good news known. We won't take time to turn here, but if you want to look a bit further into the life of Paul and how he understood his obligations and the grace that he had received, First Timothy chapter one. Verses 12 through 17 is a good cross reference where Paul discusses the fact that he was a sinner and his only hope was in the good news of Jesus. So God has proven his gracious love for his people by ensuring the spread of the gospel. We will learn later on in chapter 4 that Jesus left gifts to the church, and one of the early gifts that he gave to the church were the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They had seen him perform miracles. They had heard him teach. And they had seen him in his resurrected state. They they believed that the good news was true. And Paul, who had direct revelation from Jesus, was set apart by Christ to give foundation to the church. And so we stand in their stead. We do the same things that they did. They They were just sinners. But they were saved sinners. They were, they were rebels, but they had been rescued. We have the responsibility, much like them, to make sure that the gospel is spread all over the world. Paul will end this letter toward the end of chapter 6, asking for prayer from the Ephesians, that words may be given to him to open his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul wrote this letter from prison, and yet he still sought to make the gospel known as best he could with all of his efforts. Most of us, I guess present company excluded, will not make a living out of this. Most of us will not get a paycheck for going out and preaching the gospel. But what rests upon each of us, you have circles of contact all around you. And I wonder how often most of us take time to pray for those around us and to deliberately approach those around us with the good news of Jesus. Those of us who understand the responsibility to live righteously and to live for the glory of God still have a difficult time, if we're being honest, sharing this good news of Jesus. But God loves the world. and God wants to make sure that His good news is made known everywhere. So I invite you to continue to give your resources, your money to the church so that we can can make the gospel known in this community and around the world in increasing measure. But I call you not just to expend the, the resources of your finances, but to expend the resources of your time. God is a God who shares. He shared His Son. And He set apart men for Himself to make sure that the good news was shared Will you do that? I'm not here to browbeat you. But if God is such a God of sharing love, should not we be those who willingly share the good news that alone can lead people from death to life? God has proven his gracious love for his people by ensuring the spread of his gospel. We are recipients of this grace We can live within the implications of God's promises by by doing the same, by making sure that this good news continues to be shared here and everywhere. God has proven His gracious love for His people by not only ensuring the spread of the gospel, but by restoring sinners to Himself. We've already seen this with Paul. God took Paul, who sought to destroy Christians and instead made him one. And sent him out to help others become Christians. Like Paul, we are sinners. But God restores sinners to himself. He set out to do that from the very beginning. We will get into this next week. But we find in verse 4, as a little bit of foreshadowing, that God intended the salvation of his people before the foundation of the world. Paul said this back in Galatians 1, if you were following along, paying attention. Paul said that he had been set apart from his mother's womb. God God had sovereign eternal purposes for Paul and for you and for me. But not all who seem to be connected to God in some sort of relationship actually live according to the purpose of redemption. Let me unpack that just a little bit. We believe that God made the world to display his glory display his creative design to display his power to display his authority and kingship over all things but but God made a world that he full well knew would fall into sin and the only way that it could be rescued is if he would rescue it himself so he made plans with his son to to provide him to be a rescuer And so the purpose of creation was that the glory of God might be known and enjoyed. And the purpose of redemption was that the glory of God might be known and enjoyed among those who formerly did not know or enjoy Him. Back in the Old Testament, God called Israel to this. We partook of the Lord's Supper earlier in our worship and tied it back to the feast of the Passover that the Jews practiced together. As we said, for hundreds of years the Jews did this in remembrance of the mercy of God upon them. It was given to them to remind them that God was merciful. And he showed them mercy that they might be reconnected to him, reconciled to him, restored to him. And yet tragically, sadly, despite the fact that they were recipients of his free and sovereign grace, they did not receive it and went their own way. We find in Exodus chapter 19, not long after the first Passover was celebrated, but God says through Moses to Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel was to know that they were God's. Not only had he made them, he had rescued them from bondage and called them to be his own. But later on in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years later, this was God's assessment of Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged or separated from God. Despite the fact that God had called them to Himself. This was His assessment of them after many, many generations. Why? because they were sinners. And though God had given them a covenant and shown them the way that they were to live, it could not rescue them. It instead pointed them to a rescuer, one who would bring a new covenant. And that is what Jesus did. Jesus brought a new covenant, not written on tablets of stone, not thundering down from Mount Sinai, but instead speaking words of grace and etching His laws upon the hearts of mankind and giving them His Spirit so that they would want to obey and could obey and therefore fulfill the purposes of the people of God. And Peter talks about this in the second chapter of his first epistle. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is what God wanted Israel to be in Exodus 19, but... But they never fulfilled it. So God sovereignly gave a new covenant through Jesus. And now the ones to whom Peter wrote. And us, we are called to be a holy nation. A people for his own possession, Peter goes on. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. And As Paul opens up this letter to the Ephesians, he proves to us that God shows grace to his people by not only ensuring the spread of the gospel, but by calling us to himself. If you look in the latter portion of verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul addresses his words to the saints. These are ones who are set apart to God. They're holy ones. They're They're consecrated to God. And they are called to be faithful in Christ Jesus. As saints, there are are implications for us. As those faithful in Christ Jesus, there's there's implications for us. And I'll get to those in just a moment. But but primarily what Paul is saying here is, is, God has done everything necessary to make you his own. The emphasis, the, the tone that, that Paul is striking in the second portion of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, is that God has done all this work. He's the one who's made them saints. He is the one who has made them faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say faithful to Christ Jesus. He says faithful in Christ Jesus. This is more about their standing than it is about their behavior, which we'll get to in just a moment. So here's the logical flow of thought. God in his great mercy has made sure that the good news has been spread, passed down from generation to generation. And so here we are. We are recipients of his shared grace. What is the result of those who receive that shared grace, this good news? Positionally before God, our standing before God is that we are set apart to him. We have gone from being rebels to righteous. From being sinners to saints. From seeking our own way to seeking Him. And when He sees us, He looks at us, not on our own merits, but in the merits of His Son. We are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness covers us. That's our position. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, you who have received this shared grace handed down to us if you have received this you are a saint before him this does not mean that you live perfectly but it means that you are in Christ and he sees you in him now implicationally if you are a saint you should live as such to put it very simply you should do the things he tells you to do And you should not do the things that He doesn't want you to do. You should live according to your identity. That's what we will learn, really, in chapters 4 through 6. And so because of the implications of who we are positionally, I ask you today, how are you living? We should not assume that merely because we bear the name of saint or those faithful in Christ that we are all necessarily living for His glory, but... But remember why you were rescued. Brother, sister, you were were rescued that you might proclaim, as Peter says, the excellencies of His grace. Are you doing that with, with your life and with your lips? If you are not, forgiveness is freely offered to you. Again, because positionally you are in Christ. So when you sin you need not despair. When you don't measure up to the full stature of God's perfection, you need not lose heart. When you recognize in moments of honesty that you're not all that you want to be, you need not give up. Because positionally, if you're in Christ, you are free and you are safe. And though you should live for Him with all that you've got, trusting in His Spirit, I want to remind you that you are secure in Him. And just to make sure that we understand this, Paul says in verse 2, Grace to you. Those of you who are in Christ, those of you who have staked your claim on Him, that He's your only hope for life, those of you who are resting in Christ Jesus, Paul says, Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God has proven his gracious love for his people by ensuring the spread of his gospel. By restoring sinners to himself. And lastly in verse 2. By affirming our relationship with him. If we understand who God is. And who we are. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. Would be blasphemous, scandalous, untruth. If it weren't for Christ. God in his perfect holiness could not share himself with his people if it weren't for Christ. But Christ has come. And Christ did die in our place. And Christ does offer his righteousness to us. And if we trust him and rest in him then we receive from God the Father reconciliation, restoration. And rather than experiencing what we deserve, instead we get family and inheritance and love and relationship and restored fellowship. Grace is getting the opposite of what we deserve. It was common in the ancient world for letters to open up this way. Grace to you. But the apostles took it and gave it new meaning. This is not merely good wishes. These aren't merely helpful thoughts toward those who are written to. And instead, what Paul wants these people to understand is that, as they're going to read this letter is that they are recipients of the grace of the Almighty. So this is not just a simple greeting. It's a profound thought. And though I can't really capture it, I I can't make you feel this. To understand who Paul was and what he became and and to see ourselves through that lens, who we are and now what we've become. I say to you, grace. Grace to you. You are in fellowship with, with the God of eternity. And he has smiled upon you. And though it seems too good to be true, it's not. And you're recipients of what you did not deserve. We benefit from what we did not earn. And we have not only the hope of eternal life, but hope in the here and now. That we can be transformed and renewed. And because of the grace of God shared to us in Christ, peace is offered to us most of us scramble for peace all the time. And whether we recognize it as such or can label it as such, we do it. In many senses, that's what daily life is about for most of us. Making enough money to keep a roof over our heads. Working hard to make sure our families are fed. Finding the most pleasurable sorts of leisure that we can pursue to make ourselves happy. Buying and selling an insatiable clip to fill up what is lacking inside. Seeking the most meaningful relationships so that our hearts will be filled. But the truth of the matter is, Though we're always seeking for peace, it often eludes us. We know deep down that money can't do that and relationships can't do that and sex can't do that. And and all the things the world has to offer, good or not good, those things can't bring peace. Peace comes because of grace. There's a sequence to this. Peace is the result of grace. Because God has given us Christ restored us to Himself, given us what we did not deserve, peace is possible. This means that forevermore we can escape wrath, we can escape hell, and live with the God of eternity for forever. But there's peace offered to us now. That we can be transformed. That we don't have to serve sin. That that we can stop And though we won't ever do it perfectly in this life, we don't have to be who we once were. Selfishness can actually decrease and and be replaced with love. Greed can be diminished and replaced with sharing. Anger can be vanquished little by little and replaced with kind mercy. you're like me today, I don't really like who I've been recently in many senses. But the truth of the matter is, despite my many sins, I can be at peace with God because he's given me Christ. God does not accept me based upon my performance. So relationally with God, I, I am at peace in this moment because I know I'm secure in him. But there's angst in my heart. There's angst in there because this world is broken. And I'm broken still. But I want to be at rest. And now four decades into my life, I have have tried just about everything to make my heart happy and, and to be at rest. To be able to just be like this. That how often are we like that? How many days are we... Just, just okay? If you are in Christ, though the world feels like it is being rent in two, and though inside your heart is churning and your mind never stops working, brother, sister you may be at peace. And if you can be at peace with God, then you have everything you need. So I call you to cease your insatiable drive toward idolatry, which we all collectively seem to pursue with great abandon, and instead to rest in the one who has given himself for you. And though life will often feel hectic, and though inside you will often feel frantic. God is for you in Christ and you may rest in him. In Jude, verses 20 and 21, Jude says to God's people, but you beloved, that's us too, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Eternal life isn't here yet, And while we wait in the here and now, I call you to to keep drinking in this truth. Keep resting in what is true about you. If you are in Christ Jesus, beg the Holy Spirit to remind you of what is true and rest in him each day. You don't go a week between meals, so don't go a week between feasting on the promises of God because... It is from the promises of God that you get the peace that you so desperately want. I think there's an implication in the way that we live together, and we'll close in just a moment. If that is the way that God sees us, if He extends His grace freely to us and calls us to rest in Him, to have peace with Him, that's the way this church community should feel. And you all have a role to play in that. This means that how you talk to each other, how you treat each other, everything is in play. Everything matters. How do you talk to each other? Do do you speak words of truth to each other, or, or is that awkward and embarrassing? Jesus was never ashamed to tell his people he loved him. God never felt awkward. And affirming his amazing love for his people. So affirm each other in the grace of God. And affirm each other in mutual love. Treat each other with kindness. Prefer each other. Show honor. Forgive each other. Bear with one another. For if we are the people of God who have received his grace and rest in his peace. We are to treat each other that way. How are you doing with that? The fabric of this community should reflect the grace and peace of God that is extended to us. That's hard to do. And the only way that you can do that is if you personally understand that you're a sinner saved by grace. You're a recipient of grace and peace. And then when you see yourself in light of that, it's so much easier to treat each other that way. It's hard. Undoubtedly, admittedly that God is gracious to us in Christ and we should be that way toward each other. May we feel the beauty and power of grace. May we extend it to each other. So, in closing, just as a recap, I want you to see in these two short verses that God proves his gracious love for you. He's done that by making sure that you have the gospel and he calls you to spread it to others. He proves this to you Because he's restored you to himself and he proves this to you by affirming you in his grace and offering you his great peace. I call you to rest in this and I call you to extend it to others. This is not too good to be true. It is the truth of God and it is for all who will receive it by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take these truths Confirm faith in the hearts of your people. Rescue those who have not yet submitted to you. May we live for your glory. May we be at peace because of your grace. Thank you for your promises. We pray these things in your name.